And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. You may also be listening on a podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on one of our very much appreciated and loved community syndicates all across the country. We have, uh, as usual, an action-packed show for you today. And, uh, just over halfway through the show, we're going to be speaking to Joe Royal, who is an officer for the Global Ocean Legacy Project with the Pew Charitable Trusts out of London. And no, I don't mean London, Ontario, all the way from the UK. We'll be taking her call, uh, primarily talking about the Pitcairn Ocean Reserve, which is one of the largest reserved ocean areas in the world. But before we get to that, first up in right now, I was going to say just a moment, but as soon as I finish basically this description, we'll be speaking to Ryan O'Connor, who is an author of the uh, book, The First Green Wave, Pollution Probe and the Origins of Environmental Activism in Ontario. And I believe I already have Ryan on the line. Are you there? Hello, Darren. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us this morning or whenever our listeners might be listening. I always forget about that. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I was very interested to read about uh, the description of your book, and then uh, I was very graciously uh, gifted a copy by your publisher. Um, One of the things and the place I think I would like to start was that when I'm 32 now, and I remember when I was uh, in sort of high school hearing rumblings about Pollution Probe, which I believe was probably still sort of nearing the end of its activity at that time, but was still a thing. And then basically that was before I sort of got into full-time environment uh, awareness, and then later I would describe it as activism. Um, So I missed, you know, I'm aware of Pollution Probe, but I very much missed the legacy of Pollution Probe. And so I'm very happy to have you on the show today to talk about your book and to tell us about this important part of Canadian environmental history, I would say just general Canadian lore. Uh, so maybe we can start with that. Would you um, start telling us a little bit about where, why this is such an important story? And let's start all the way back at the beginning, which is uh, at the, 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 air, the Air of Death, which was a controversial CBC documentary back in 1969. Absolutely. So The Air of Death, it was a broadcast Actually, in 1967, it was a CBC documentary uh, that exposed air pollution problems throughout Canada. And it was very significant in highlighting this Canadian problem that kind of put to rest the idea that air pollution was a concern for Americans, not just not Canadians. So this documentary, it, it raised a lot of concerns, but doubly so because industry... Uh, really didn't like the expose of uh, air pollution problems. And it led to a public backlash, efforts to discredit the uh, journalists behind the documentary. And ultimately, that's how uh, Pollution Probe was formed. There was staff at the University of Toronto student newspaper, the Varsity, who decided to get involved, write a report to the CRTC inquiry into the air of death. And uh, they ultimately formed a permanent group, Pollution Probe, to investigate pollution problems uh, at home in Toronto and more widely throughout Ontario, Canada, and I guess you could say the world. So that's their founding. Uh, very quickly, they developed into a, well, a, a high-profile organization. They're one of the first, if not the first, you know, modern environmental activist group to emerge in Canada, and they became very popular, very successful. They were great at using the media to get their message across. They adopted guerrilla theater. They were funny. They were witty, and they had some darn smart people leading them. 
So, uh, yeah, between that and their support from the University of Toronto, they're actually an official project of the Department of Zoology, which lent them a whole lot of credibility. They were able to really raise a lot of issues in a very short amount of time. And I should say, they still exist uh, today. They're the organizers of the annual clean air commute that you may hear about. But otherwise, they focus on working behind the scenes with stakeholders. So they don't have a huge public profile compared to some other ENGOs, but they're still active. So one of the, the one of the first things that really jumped out at me when I first started looking into uh, the background behind your book was that the, the the beginning story there, the part you just described about um, the documentary came out. Uh, sorry, you corrected me there. It came out in in sixty seven, but the the controversy at U of T was in in sixty nine, and it 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 kind of reads to me like you know with my sort of experience as a sort of next generation environmentalist if you will uh it reads like a bit of a alternate universe because you know we're we, we see here so a doc- documentary came out and people learned some stuff and, and students wrote an article for the student newspaper which then got a whole bunch of students and faculty involved which then formulated a group which then communicated effectively with government it, compared to sort of our experience today with almost all of those factors uh faculty engagement student engagement, the response of uh, sort of facts and activism and having government respond to them. Every part of the story sounds like a fantasy compared to where we are today. Am I completely out of touch by feeling that way about this? I I don't think so. I I think I agree with your statements. And I'm, you know, same age as you. I had my environmental consciousness raised in the late 80s, early 90s when I was a youngster. And I mean, we go through peaks and valleys where there seems to be public concern for the environmental movement and, or environmental issues more generally, but I, I look at what was happening there and it's, it's amazing. You know, they started with nothing. There was no such thing as environmental law, but they, you know, they created a field called environmental law. Uh, I, I'm not crediting pollution pro with that, but I'm saying more generally there was an environmental law. Uh, there weren't ministers of the environment when this all began. There weren't the broad range of environmental protection acts that we've you know, developed in the subsequent years. So uh, they did an awful lot. They basically started at square one. So, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the that that was sort of the the uh, initial uh, spark. Uh, but talk to me a little bit more about some of the other uh, wins and some of the other campaigns that were successful that really formulated sort of this cultural uh, uh, this culture of environmental activism uh, uh, around that time in Canada. Yeah, so I guess speaking of the pollution probe story, they early on. I mean, they, as you mentioned, they formed in 1969. Uh, within a year, they're having high-profile campaigns uh, and winning <laughs> and making a difference. Uh, within their first year, they were uh, they weighed in on the phosphate problem that existed in uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, that's one of their really interesting early national uh, developments. Because in the 1960s, if you look at the Great Lakes, well, early in the first half of the 60s, there's the problem of what they called excessive foaming that was, you know, very bad in the lakes. That was coming from phosphate detergent. 
I should say, phosphate in detergents. And, you know, eventually the governments in Canada, the United States, and, you know, the states and the provinces decided to lower the phosphate levels. But then they realized, as soon as that was solved, that the bigger problem was cultural eutrophication um, from phosphate. And uh, they just weren't moving on this issue. It got bogged down in international bureaucracy and red tape. The pollution probe weighed in. They had student volunteers spending vacation time analyzing the church and see what the phosphate content was. Because at the time, the boxes of detergent didn't list how much phosphate was in them. Uh, so they created a list with all of the major brands that were available for sale. They listed how much phosphate was in them. And then they publicized this list. It was launched on a 12-minute live segment on the CBC television. Uh, this list became very important. They received thousands of requests for it. It was reprinted in magazines, newspapers, newsletters. It was posted in stores. And it turned out that consumers really liked being given the option of making a, you know, less harmful decision, a greener decision. <clears throat> and with the very next day after this list was, you know, released, you see the government coming out and announcing that they'd be lowering phosphate levels over the next five years. And so, I mean, that's not a coincidence. This is a group that was able to focus public concern on an issue and give people uh, a way to uh, address their concern through their purchasing habits. But they also managed to get the government to speed up its, uh, well, slow-moving action by doing this. So, I mean, they're, they're a very effective group. So we're, uh, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Ryan O'Connor about uh, the first Green Wave uh, book, The Pollution Probe and Origins of Environmental <coughs> Activism in Ontario. Ryan, uh, one of the early sort of issues there that, uh, that, that was able, some traction uh, was had at the time, um, was listed here was uh, things like uh, litter along the highways and, and smokestacks belching uh, toxins and uh, uh, some sludge in the, I'm uh, sorry, I'm going to screw up pronouncing this river. Hopefully you can correct me. The Cuyahoga River. Uh, actually caught fire. These are all things that are very, very visible problems that are easy to point to and say that's, you know, that's something that, that we probably shouldn't have so much of. <laughs> we should probably yeah. reduce the amount of lakes on fire. And I think that's something that anybody can see and say, yes, that's, that's clearly a bad thing. That isn't going to, that's going to hurt me. It's, it's probably not going to be indifferent and it's definitely not going to help me. Uh, what aspect do you think, what role do you think that played outside of so, sort of simply the, the climate, if you'll excuse the pun, um, of the political and sort of social activism in general? What role do you think that tangibility played in success that we're maybe we're having more difficulty with things like uh, climate change now? Uh, what role do you think that easy connection to, yes, I see that, that's definitely bad, and I want you to do something about that, uh, played in, in their success in making progress on these issues? Yeah, that's really where Pollution Probe started. I mean, it's right there in the name, even though it was an environmental activist group. Uh, it, it's got pollution in its title. They were, first off, as you mentioned, they were looking at air pollution, water pollution, and quickly they realized that the, the bigger issues were perhaps not visible to the naked eye. <clears throat> After looking at air pollution coming out of smokestacks in Toronto, uh, 
particularly the Richard Hearn Generating Station, they realized the bigger problem behind that was energy policy and the growth ethos. You know, that the consumer lifestyle, the constant planning of increasing uh, consumption of energy, all of that that was guiding Ontario Hydro was much bigger and much more concerning than just the smoke coming out of a stack, as harmful as that is. So very quickly, within just a, a couple of years, there was a realization that the, the bigger, broader issues may not be visible to us. But that's also, you know, it's great to acknowledge, but you know, it's kind of hard to round people up and get them moving on an issue if they can't it. It, if it seems more abstract, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't successfully address it. I mean, there's the hole in the ozone layer that we've, you know, we've been combating. There's solutions of changing what our products contain, right? Especially aerosol cans, that sort of thing. And we can't really see that unless we, well, we're using some NASA imagery of our, you know, face and the ozone layer, uh, but I, I really do feel like that's a bit of a challenge confronting us with climate change. Uh, we do see, you know, the extreme weather, but often it's for places we don't live unless you're in California. So, Ryan, the second last chapter in your book is called The Changing Environmental Landscape. Um, do you want to just, you were sort of on that topic already a little bit, but do you want to just sort of uh, skim through uh, sort of some of the concepts that you address in that chapter? What is the, what has been the big changes between uh, when Pollution Probe came out and 2015 environmentalism in Canada? Yeah, well, what I noticed is early on, you know, speaking of the late 1960s, throughout the 1970s, the focus in Canada seemed to be in localized regional environmental group in in Ontario pollution probe was very very influential they had a series of 50 independently run but affiliated pollution probe organizations throughout just southern Ontario itself uh, so you know they're very influential but you have other groups in the west of Canada and East Canada but you didn't have a major national presence for these organizations. And that really seemed to change in the 1980s. You see the development of Sierra Club Canada. It replaces a couple localized chapters of the Sierra Club and turns it into a national organization. You have Greenpeace Canada emerge, where before it was various chapters, whether it be Greenpeace Toronto, Greenpeace in Vancouver. Uh, you have the Canadian Coalition on Acid Rain Development, World Wildlife Fund of Canada, while officially founded earlier, it really wasn't active until the 1980s. And it seems to me that the reason for this is that those larger international issues became much more prominent and people moved away from just realizing, well, we, you know, we should clean these rivers. There's still that acknowledgement that we should be doing these localized efforts, but those overwhelming international uh, in scope issues became much more dominant. And it, it makes sense in that case to have larger national bodies that could focus their energies and their funding on these bigger issues. So that's a, a major difference I saw in the you know, 
the development of the movement in the 1980s. I kind of call that the, the second wave of the environmental movement in my book. So Ryan, unfortunately, we are uh, we are out of time, but I want to make sure to let people know if you if they are in the Toronto area, you are holding you have uh, you've been doing a series of talks. Uh, we've we've unfortunately missed many of them. Uh, this was uh, unfortunately the earliest we could get you on the air, but there is still a couple left. I've got uh, one here uh, at the Toronto Reference Library from six thirty to eight uh, this coming Tuesday, April the twenty first, uh, and another one if you're in the Mississauga area Wednesday the, the next day on the twenty second from seven to eight thirty at the Mississauga Public Library. Uh, yeah. If people are interested in uh, having a look at your book and maybe ordering a copy or, or contacting you, can you just let them know how they can do that? Yeah, my book, you can get all the details at my website. It's my name, ryanoconnor.ca. The book's available online from Indigo, from Amazon. And yeah, if you go to my website, you can check out events, what you mentioned about Toronto Reference Library, Mississauga Public Library. I'll be in Kingston in June, so... Yeah, check that out, and uh, you can find out more information. You can even send me a question. I'd be happy to answer it. Uh, UBC Press has actually been kind enough to uh, uh, make the forward uh, by uh, Graham Wynn from the original uh, original team, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, was uh, has made the forward written by uh, Graham uh, available on their website as well. So we're going to link directly to that too, if anyone wants to to read that, uh, to have a look at that forward, and uh, and we'll link to the website as well. Ryan O'Connor, again, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Hey, Darren, on Green thanks Jordan. for having. I appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. Cheers. All right, so we're going to go to a music break in just a moment, uh, and then we're going to come back and talk to the uh, Ocean Legacy Project with the, from the Pew, uh, Pew Charity Trust uh, about uh, the Pitcairn Marine Reserve right after Aaron, our tech, joins us and tells us what are we going to be listening to, Aaron? Hey, uh, yeah, we're going to be listening to White Light Of by Do Make Say Think. All right, stay yeah. tuned. We'll be right back. Thanks, All Aaron. Right. Thank you.
All right, and we are back. I'm Darren Gaster. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. We just had a last-minute number change, so we're just gonna we just need another minute to get Joe Royal on the phone from the uh, Ocean Legacy Trust. Uh, in the meantime, Stefan, you were informing me that you have pages full of numbers here. What are uh, maybe we'll do a, a preview of the comment section at the end of the show here? Do you want to get us started? For sure. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna obviously the biggest news in environmentalism, uh, at least in Ontario, over the past past week has been the fact that Ontario is getting a price on carbon. Whoop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that is the collective actual sound environmentalists made. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps a, with a little bit more squealing. Yeah, a, a concerned woo. A I concerned think is, woo. I think is what we got. Yeah. Um, be, mainly because of the you know the ongoing battle between whether or not we're talking about carbon tax or we're talking about uh, cap and trade, uh, and and for whatever reason, uh, we have not. I've not. I've not I've not jumped into Premier Wynn's head uh, and discovered the exact overarching arguments that are made for a uh, for a carbon tax or for a cap trade over a carbon tax, uh, but I was just crunching some numbers actually to sort of I was because I was curious when when, when I came in here, uh, the what the price on carbon really because because the bigger thing is that the big push for this price on carbon that we're getting or this this carbon the cap and trade system that we're getting uh, is that it's already in place it's already uh, it already exists in California and Quebec so it wasn't like we we're trying to build something from scratch which is the real concern uh, about uh, about carbon about prices on carbon so the uh, the the one thing I'll sneak preview because I know we're we're going to try and get into a bit a bit more at the end of the show um, was that uh, my sort of one contribution that I'll just get out of the way now was that um, there's been basically an article every single day in uh, local. Um, I don't like categorizing newspapers as right wing and left wing, but the Toronto Sun is basically Canada's Fox News. <laughs> um, it, some of the most dishonest. Uh, articles I've ever seen, even for the Toronto Sun, have been coming out since this announcement. Uh, I'm going to post one on the website just because it is so full of nonsense um, that I'm hoping. And and the best part is that at the end, the the person says, "Email me if you have comments." So mm-hmm. I'm going to post it, and please do email this woman your comments. Um, but it's just incredibly it's incredibly dishonest. And and one of the things that w- that was mentioned. Uh, was the issue of, uh, you know, was making, it was, oh, well, you know, Glenn Murray was uh, said at, at some point, may, I don't even know if it's a real quote, but let's just assume that it is. It was in quotes. Um, it was something about picking a lane. And it was like, oh, look, you're just picking arbitrarily. No, what they're saying is th- there's many ways to deal with something. And so we've chosen this one. And and I think what the point of Glenn Murray's comments, the ones, assuming it was properly quoted, what it was referring to was that there's a number of options. They each have uh, advantages and disadvantages. And we've and, and, and we're going with a carbon tax. Um, there's arguments for all of them. And I think it was it was him acknowledging this is maybe not the across the board best plan but it's a plan mm-hmm. uh and it's the one that we've chosen is going to best suit our needs for better or worse and and i think you and i both have some maybe we'll phrase it as questions about that um but this this nonsense about and uh, like the basically the front page of the sun every time i walk past a, a newspaper box i haven't police but i want to mm-hmm. kick it because <laughs> the front page is liberals raise taxes now they're tax grab tax grab in none of in not one word of any of these articles is any mention of the actual problem that this this uh, new piece of policy is going to be addressing. And so that's that's the thing that really frustrates me, not because I think, you know, the people at the Toronto Sun are idiots, although I'm sure some of them are, uh, because I think people that don't take climate change seriously are idiots, although I'm sure many of them are. Um, it's. It's just the fact that you can you we can have as much of a conversation about a way to deal with something. I think that's important, and I am certainly not in the business of telling people what the best way to address a problem is. I have my opinion, but that doesn't mean that other opinions aren't valid, and I'm totally capable of being wrong. 
But pretending there isn't a problem is not a contribution to solving it. Mm. And I think that's the thing that really gets under my skin. And I think that's the reason why, you know, leading up to this announcement, we've had so much discussion, you know, from environmental groups about what a better policy was. You and I have said on this uh, on this program many times before that we're generally probably, or I know I am for sure, and, and you can confirm that you are, mm. generally more happy with, what, for instance, the, the Citizens Climate Lobby proposal, which was a, ta a fee and dividend system. But as soon as they announce they're picking one, most people have fallen in line. There's been a, in, to what extent, which, to which I mean is that it's not that they're suddenly all criticism of cap and trade has disappeared, but everybody seems to understand, well, at least we have a plan. Let's, let's work on this plan. Let's make the thing that we have as good as it possibly can be. This is way, way, way better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just, I'm just sort of wondering how long you know, authors like the people that wrote this article and the, the daily articles that are coming out from right-wing newspapers, how long they're going to be able to play this game, even for their own audience, of, yeah, okay, well, you know, I agree, maybe I don't think the liberals are taxing whatever, blah, 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 but there is an actual problem. I, I, I'm wondering if that's ever going to catch up to them or, or if they really just think that they're that not one of their readers actually is aware of the fact that climate change is real. Yeah, I, well, I think there's a, there's, there's a really interesting organization called uh, Republic N, uh, which is, which, is which, on, which I follow on Twitter mainly out of complete interest, uh, which is entirely the idea of Republic N. The E-N is, I keep saying it weirdly because E-N is capitalized, is that it's, it's Republicans who think we need to do something with the environment. Uh, which I just find fascinating as an idea, given the consistent, complete ignor ignoring uh, that we're sort of seeing uh, of, the, of the issue, at least in the United States. Uh, but in regards to that, I, th I think that what really gets you, uh, what gets me going about that idea of writing these articles uh, for the Sun, is I like if you're going to if you're going to attack the idea of a tax existing. Uh, you have to explain either or a, any any pricing mechanism existing. You have to give me a reason why a it shouldn't exist or be a better alternative. Um, and if you just do neither, and if your only thing is this is going to cost you more money, then that's kind of a useless thing to stay. Uh, but I was just guess to just give you a bit of time. I'm going to get back to what I was what I what I was really interested in, uh, which was I wanted to check. Uh, wh I want to know how much a price per ton uh, costs in California. I wanted to know how well the the system that the, so Ontario is joining Quebec and on California in a pricing uh, in a pricing system uh, using the cap and trade, uh, and I was curious to see exactly how much a price what what the price was in California to sort of see roughly how well it's working, uh, and uh, and the answer is it's twelve dollars and seventy cents per ton uh, in California, and that's a that's a short ton, so that's a that's a imperial system, and it's twelve seventy American. Uh, and so, at, so, so twelve dollars, eleven or thirteen dollars. It was a lot higher. It sort of dropped and still been sitting around there right now. Uh, in, even though actually they just expanded it to cover gasoline uh, in the which which obviously leads to a, should should have lead, led to a price increase, but because gasoline prices are so low, it didn't yet. Uh, but what's interesting about that is so it's twelve dollars and seventy cents right now, uh, as of April sixteenth, which is actually today, which is. Live updates, guys. Check that out. Or seven, that was yesterday. Sorry, yesterday. It was, and or if you're listening to one or one syndicate, maybe last 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 Thursday, Thursday, <laughs> April sixteenth. Uh, which is in, so twelve seventy is what they've got right now. American uh, U.S. government study said the social cost of of carbon uh, is probably thirty seven per ton. So right now we're looking at three one third of what we really need. Uh, a Stanford study that came out in January argued that it could be as high as that the social cost of carbon could be as high as 220 
dollars per ton, which would make this what one twentieth of what it needs to be. Uh, and interestingly, I, then I went over to see what BC was up to, because uh, that's what was all compared. To. It was the, the idea was Ontario was either going to join BC or Quebec. That was sort of that was sort of the understanding. Once once Ontario was going to get a price on carbon, it was going to go one way or the other way. Uh, and we decided to go uh, go go with BC and Quebec, or sorry, uh, let's go Quebec and, and California. Uh, whereas BC is sitting right now at their carbon tax is at thirty dollars uh, per ton, uh, which is actually, if you then do the math, uh, twenty seven dollars Canadian per short ton, and then twenty two dollars American. Uh, so it's about ten dollars more still than what we're looking at. We're looking at in California and Quebec. Um, so the short, long, short of it is, at this current moment, uh, the pricing mechanisms uh, are. It's great that we have it. Uh, but we're looking at probably dramatically lower than it needs to be, uh, and hopefully we'll see an increase as uh, as Ontario gets on board. Uh, but it's still it's still too low. It's still even even BC in reality is still too low. And perhaps that's the maybe there's, there's, there can be a case can be made for the uh, for the cabin trade system because BC's carbon tax being at thirty dollars per ton is sort of now stagnant. It's going to sit there, whereas. Uh, it, whereas there's much more possibility of actually lowering and increasing uh, the price on carbon uh, in California, Quebec, and Ontario. Uh, but because I I'm usually the optimist on this on this show, I feel like there's and I'm sort of I'm sort of I'm 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 I'm, I'm on the fence on this one. I think it's I like I'm ecstatic we have a price on carbon. If a year ago you told me or two years ago you told me we'd have a price on carbon in Ontario, uh, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, and the fact that we have one at all is fantastic. Uh, I hope that we will see an inc a, a more expedient increase to sort of uh, to increase the actual market rate for carbon, but that will probably take a couple years. Uh, but let's. Uh, I, I'm intrigued here. I haven't actually heard Kevin's opinions on this yet, because uh, actually, right at the end of last week's show was when I actually read that we probably get a price on carbon uh, in the Globe, and we, we had a short conversation, but I had run out. Uh, so, Kevin, what are your thoughts? Well, hi, everyone. Um, so I kind of missed where this conversation started because I was in the booth trying to connect to our... Uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a short update. <laughs> uh, we have a price on carbon coming in Ontario. Yeah. It's going to be a cap and trade system. <laughs> okay, okay. So, all right, and that's where we started. And that's, and that's, that's what I've explained to the, re to the, to the, to the listeners. Okay, so first things first, we, we wanted to interview uh, Joe Royal uh, about um, uh, the, the Pitcairn Marine Reserve that's just been uh, uh, declared by the UK government. And we just could not get through. I don't know. I get a different error message every single time I dial that number. Um, I am actually still working on it. Okay. So. Okay. Well, good. I really hope we can do that because this is near and dear to my heart. Um, she, she is an email contact. We're, we're trying to work it out. So if uh, worst case worst, I'll just read out some comments from her emails. <laughs> we'll do that. But uh, yeah, if you can just buy me another minute. That'd be okay. Great. Well, I can do that. Um, okay. So uh, yeah. Okay. Big news. Ontario has announced that there will be a price on carbon. We don't have one yet. What we have is a big announcement. Um, if uh, this this is certainly big news for all of the reasons uh, Stefan just said. Um, you know, hands down, I would have preferred something much more simple, like a, a, the the carbon tax in being implemented in BC, which is being hailed as an exemplar around the world by authorities on this, including you know the World Bank, the Economist. Uh, it's simple. It's effective. It's it's transparent. It it, it it's it's working. <laughs> the long term costs of compliance are obvious to anyone. We you know it doesn't introduce market volatility and you know a whole new layer to you know the ability for speculators and uh, investors and financial interests to sort of game the market and and you know a car a, a, a cap and trade system requires requires constant tinkering and constant political will 
So anyway, but you know, hands down, my first choice above all choices is of course to reduce carbon. <laughs> if this reduces carbon, that's fabulous. Uh, you know, it, it has to be it has to be noted that the you know sort of uh, al along with this news, we also had this uh, a premier's summit uh, in Canada about uh, the premier's meeting to um, also make announcements, or in this case, not even announcements, but sort of uh, voice aspirations about taking action on climate change as a collective. Uh, so, so it was, you know, that it, it was great. They're taking, you know, they're, 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 you know, making this public. They're, they're saying things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they haven't said, you know, much. Um, no, um, so, but what's interesting about this, okay, is that, um, Canada just missed its deadline for submitting its carbon reduction plans to the UN in advance of COP21 in Paris, which might be subtitled, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> you're our last hope. Um, and did you do that just because the Star Wars trailer came out yesterday? You know, you know what? I woke up this morning. I foolishly tuned into CBC's broadcast television broadcast day, and it, the only news in Canada, as far as CBC is concerned, this morning on their television broadcast is that the trailer for the next Star Wars movie was released. I quickly found real news, um, <laughs> but anyway, that might be why it's on my mind. And good on you, CBC. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, so so Canada just missed a deadline to submit its plan. Admittedly, this is a soft deadline, um, but uh, 30 other countries have managed to do this. <clears throat> and while that is a minority of all the countries who, who, who uh, need to submit these plans or are required to submit these plans, those, that minority still represents the majority of the emissions on the planet. And Canada, of course, I mean, who cares what the Harper government says about why they did not take action on climate change? We just know they're not going to do it. And everything they say is window dressing. But in this particular case, the argument was, well, you know, um, we just, we, we, the provinces need to give us better numbers. So, I mean, the EU accomplished this with like, what, two dozen member states, more than that? We couldn't do it with like a, some, a couple, of, a handful of provinces and territories. But what's interesting about this is that we've had months to do this. And after missing the deadline, uh, someone who, Leona Glukak, who is, you know, a, apparently our Minister of the Environment, is suddenly grousing that the provinces are not giving her good numbers to work with. Um, okay, fine. Um, now, but then at the same time, when Premier Wynne announces the cap and trade system uh, in, in Ontario, Joe Oliver, uh, our finance minister, immediately comes out and poo-poos it. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, take your pick, guys. I, I mean, as if, like I said before, as if there's any point anymore in assigning sort of any, trying to parse uh, arguments from the Harper Conservatives about uh, taking, failing to take action on climate change is if there's any point in trying to parse those arguments, assuming they're rational at all at this point, uh, and it isn't. Um, but, you know, so, so contrast, contrast the premiers, uh, some of them, the three premiers skipped this meeting, uh, contrast them, you know, coming out publicly, at least aspiring to take action, and our, our federal government uh, refusing to take action, famously refusing to take action, in fact, famously being obfuscators and obstructors on the world stage, uh, for, for other uh, uh, jurisdictions that are trying to take action. And, uh, you know, contrast that with the Leona Glukak appearing, for, you know, suddenly making some sort of announcement related to the environment to, to claim they're not doing enough and Joe Oliver saying, you know, I don't like what you're doing. <laughs> so, uh, you, know, so, so that, you know, that's where we're at. And if, um, uh, you know, I said it's a soft deadline. <coughs> really, what, what has to happen is that the, the members, the signatories to the, the Framework Convention on Climate Change have to have these plans submitted 
in time for the UN to evaluate them and determine what, make an estimate of their overall efficacy. Is this, are the commitments that people are tabling enough to avoid, you know, the two degree warming limit? Uh, so there you go. That's my, that's my take on this. It's a big announcement. Uh, if it works, it works. Um, and, you know, can the Liberal government find a way to waste a billion dollars and get nothing done? <laughs> well, of course they can. It's still the Ontario Liberal government. Uh, and that's as one of my favorite Winnie the Pooh characters says, that's just what Tiggers do best. I, I am blown away that your favorite Winnie the Pooh character is Tigger. And, and not Eeyore. Eeyore. <laughs> I was. Uh, I, I come by my cynicism on the environment quite honestly. So you I, showed just, up as Tigger and you left as Eeyore. Yeah, yeah. That's that's totally fair. <laughs> I guess thirty years of Tigger at some point you got to you <laughs> at some point it'll take its toll. <laughs> All right. So there's there's still a a small chance we might be able to uh, get Joe on the phone. We are quickly running out of time, but we will will do our absolute best. It's it's frustrating for me because I'm actually in email communication with her live while we're on the air. Uh, but if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, we will uh, do our best to rebook her because uh, we're very interested uh, to talk to them about uh, the world's largest fully protected. And that was one of my first questions was what does fully protected mean and, and why aren't they all? Uh, but we'll either get to it in a, in a moment uh, or we will uh, make do our best to, to do it. But we're running out of time for our last music break. So uh, Aaron, if you're uh, ready here, do you want to just tell us what our final music break is? We'll, we'll listen to a quick song and then hopefully we'll do our best to get uh, Joe on the phone when we come back. Uh, Aaron, what are we going to listen to? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's uh, She Smiled Sweetly by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. All right. Take it away. We'll be right back. Why do my thoughts bloom so large on me? They seem to stay for day after day and won't disappear I've tried every way But she smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly And says don't worry Oh no 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 Where she hide it inside of her That keeps her peace most every day And won't disappear, my hair's turning gray But she smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly She smiles sweetly And says don't worry Sweetly, she smiles 
Right, and we are back. Uh, we there's still a small chance, unfortunately, we may be able to get Joe on the line, but we're we're quickly running out of time. Unfortunately, I, I do apologize. We've uh, uh, seemed to have run up against an impenetrable technological hurdle uh, for this week. So if it doesn't work out, which it looks like it probably will not, unfortunately, uh, we will uh, endeavor to fix this problem and get her back on the air in the future because I'm very interested in talking to her. Uh, however, we are uh, unfortunately, as I said, down to our last uh, sort of ten minutes or so. And Kevin, you had one final thought you were trying to squeeze out. Take it. Take, take oh yes, yeah, so we said. I meant to meant to get in there is uh, you know while, while it's great that the premiers are are taking action and I'm I believe fully Kathleen Wynne is committed to doing taking action. Um, what we're seeing is the proliferation of of sub national initiatives by all manner of jurisdictions. We've got uh, carbon uh, taxes in one jurisdiction, cap and trade in in others. We've got this weird intensity target pricing system in Alberta. And just one of the consequences of the federal government thoroughly abdicating, ab- abdicating its responsibility on this on this uh, issue is that this proliferation of subnational initiatives, while it might be effective, it's just also going to be a problem down the line when inevitably these jurisdictions have to interact with each other, either through trade or regulatory uh, uh, regulations or whatever. And we're just going to have this weird patchwork quilt that's going to be incredibly difficult to harmonize. All right, we've been able to do it. Thank you so much to everybody who put their effort in. I'm uh, happy to introduce uh, Joe Royal to the program. Are you there, Joe? Hi there. Yes, Hi. I am. Sorry so Hi. much for all of the trouble. We've been we've been pulling our hair out here trying to figure this out. So thank you so much for for helping us get through it. Uh, unfortunately, we're down. To, made it. <laughs> we're down. Unfortunately, just to like the last ten minutes. So I'm going to basically stop uh, talking as much as possible. We'd really like to hear from you. Uh, the Pitcairn Ocean Reserve has been just made the 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 largest fully protected marine conservation area protected protected area in the world. Would you please uh, uh, tell us why this is such an achievement and uh, and a little bit more about the uh, the the protected area? Yes. Okay. So um, on the 18th of March, the uh, the UK government announced the intent to create Pitcairn Marine Reserve, um, which is Pitcairn is in the middle of the South Pacific. In fact, the first time I went to Pitcairn Island and I Google Earth, I couldn't find it. It was just a speck in the middle of blue. Um, it is probably the second most inhabited island in in the world. Um, and the UK government and the Pitcairn Island community have just decided to set aside the, the waters around these islands for um, to, to set it aside for the purpose of nature only, so for no commercial extraction at all, no seabed mining or fishing. Um, and this is incredibly important because the area has been identified as one of the last remaining pristine ocean wildernesses. Um, it has got uh, species that have not have never been found anywhere else in the world's oceans. It's got some of the clearest seawater that's ever been discovered, which means it has some of the deepest and most beautiful and um, massive coral coral heads. Uh, so it's extremely significant. And if we think that actually, um, if we went up to space and and looked down on on the planet, then we would see this blue 
blue planet. And actually, only 1% of that blue ocean is, is protected today. And it's incredibly important as we learn that around over 90% of uh, precious stocks are nearly or fully exploited and that we're all learning about the amount of pollution um, that's in the world's oceans, um, ocean acidification, and ensuring that the ocean is, is resilient and productive for today's and future generations. Marine reserves play a huge role in this. So, Joe, can you um, just explain to me exactly uh, one of the in the actual uh, phrasing? It says the the first fully protected. So, can you talk to me about what fully protected means and 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 what an example of something that's protected but not fully means? Yeah. So we have there are many different types of marine protected areas, and um, and it can mean a system of spatial management where you could have some protection for a certain species in one area, and you could have some areas that are limited to shipping activity or um, only a certain type of type of fishing activity. For example, um, you wouldn't want to trawl over a coral head, but you might have some, some netting on top of a coral head. Fully protected means fully protected. It means an area where no man or woman can take anything from. Um, and this is this is very important because it acts as a, a refuge for megafauna mega um, and it, these massive fully protected marine reserves um, are really kind of, they act as, um, we could call them a treasure chest or a larder for, for um, species so that they produce in this area and they have the spillover effect of the productivity that leaves the area and feeds communities uh, nearby. And so, Joe, can you please uh, just tell us um, a little bit just about sort of that importance? Uh, it's it's something that sort of as a as a public advocacy group, something that's trying to get the public and foundations and and governments to support your work. Um, it frequently has to be phrased in the language of you know preserving it for future generations and and, and sort of an aspect of there's something in this for you um, because I I think it's it's so much harder to say you know we need to protect this because you know we're killing everything in the ocean so within that can you just just talk to me about you know it's 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 lovely to, for humans to be able to enjoy the the beauty of it but talk to me a bit about just the the functional uh, biosphere life requirement for not killing everything in the oceans yeah well um Pitcairn Island might seem a long way away from all of us at the moment it takes if I was to leave England today I would arrive five days later so it might seem a little bit insignificant to us that we've protected an area that is not certainly on our, our doorstep. Um, but this is not the case. Wherever we are, if we're in the middle of a desert, um, we are relying on the on oceanic systems to sustain our life. 98% of fresh water is delivered through ocean systems. More photosynthesis happens on the surface of the ocean than in any other ecosystem. Um, it provides a source of protein for many of the world's population, and particularly the those the, the communities that don't have the the choice of um, what protein they eat from the from say blue stock supermarkets. So the oceans are intrinsic to us. We all have salt water running through our veins, and and. Uh, and therefore, we need to have resilient and productive and healthy oceans to ensure that we have resilient and productive and healthy communities. 
And one of the, um, I was just reading through your profile on the uh, on Pew Charitable Trust uh, website, and w one of the things that was in there was you talking about the one of the uh, first sort of major impacts for you that, that really got you uh, invested and involved in these sorts of issues was by by just being out uh, on the sea. I think you were you were sailing and, and seeing all the, the plastic and, and pollution that we were there. Can you comment mm. just on that sort of aspect of sort of how much easier it is to really be affected by this and feel motivated to do something about it when you actually go out and see it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, this is a big challenge, isn't it, with, with ocean conservation and, and versus terrestrial conservation. Um, and, you know, I left, I, when I was a little girl, I wanted to become a sailor and a captain, and I left school to kind of pursue this career. And I worked at sea for many, many years um, on top of the water, uh, working with whatever Mother Nature decided to throw at me that day, without really understanding our scientific and intrinsic relationship with the ocean, because it's not—it's it's what happens underneath the surface of the ocean that we can't—we can't actually see. Um, so it wasn't until I sailed uh, further into the southern ocean and, and down into the Antarctic, and that I really started to think about our connection when I when I saw plastic on beaches that felt very remote, beaches that maybe no one else has, well, maybe only a handful of people have visited, um, and thousand, over a thousand miles away from any um, majorly populated town. And it, it was then when I thought, oh, how, how, um, in, how holistic the nation is, and how, uh, how interconnected everything is, and, and how our lifestyle choices, thousands of miles away, um, impact can do impact the health of the sea, um, but it's, it is it is difficult to um, to feel that connection and to see change. But however, you know it's also one of the I think that marine conservation is also quite tangible because we do see you know the effects of climate, the effects of um, our addiction to fossil fuels. We we see that very quantifiably um, impacting the health of coral reefs, and we see that impacting the the chemical balance of, of the ocean. So it's also it's very real. The change in the ocean is very, very easy to um, scientifically quantify. I think, even though we can't visually always see it. All right, Joe. Unfortunately, we're we're down to our literally one minute left. I just had one final question for you here to sneak in, which is that uh, something I, I missed to mention was that not only um, how is this now the the largest protected uh, area in the uh, ocean area protected in the world, but this is very recent. This was uh, approved by the British government uh, just in March of this year. Um, so, what's next for for yep. your group? So for for our so for the P Trust um, Global Ocean Legacy Project, we've identified about thirteen sites that we're working on globally uh, to create the first generation of fully protected marine um, marine reserves or marine parks. It sounds a bit more magical if we call them parks. Um, so we're now working in the UK in the London office. We're now working in the Southern Ocean um, in South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands. Um, we're currently working in Palau and Chile, and their sites that we think will be will also um, get designated this year. So it could be a very big year for ocean conservation this year. It's very exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much for both your time and, uh, and all your hard work uh, over uh, in the, the Global Ocean Legacy uh, Project. We very much appreciate it and, and warm wishes from Canada. Oh, thank you for bringing the ocean onto your show. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Bye. And unfortunately, we're, we're literally Bye. down to the last minute here. So uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We'll have a good green week, folks. We'll see everybody next week.